Good morning. <laughs> I thought I'd give you something a little more interesting to look at this morning. So to tell the truth was a TV game show. It was pretty well done by the time I grew up, but uh, it had a panel of four celebrities that would try to identify somebody who had a special talent or a special job. And there were always these three contestants, right? And, and they're trying to lie to get the panel to pick the wrong person. So the, the two imposters could lie and say anything. The one guy always had to tell the truth and so you could figure out who it was. And after the questioning, the panel's all done. Then the host would say something along this line, will the real blank please stand up? And then finally, the one who was telling the truth would be revealed. I want you to imagine for a moment the Lord Jesus Christ being on this show. Just picture this, right? <laughs> Contestant number one. Is it true that you are the Messiah, the promised one, the savior of the world, the one who was to come? Or should we ask the other two? Are you the one that we've heard all these miracles about that you are the promise maker and the promise keeper? As Jesus was preparing his disciples as he was getting ready to take the cross, one of the most famous passages in the Gospel of John says this, John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus went on to say, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and that will be sufficient for us. Jesus said, have I been with you so long and yet you don't know me, Philip? He who has seen the father has seen me. So how can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I want you to keep that passage in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles for the first time to the letter of the Colossians. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church at Colossae and that's where we're going to start a verse-by-verse, line-by-line study. While Paul was under house arrest in Rome, he wrote four letters which are known as the prison epistles. Epistles just a, a word that means letter. The prison epistles are as follows. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. The first three were written to specific churches, and of course Philemon was written to an individual. Paul wrote each one of these letters to address specific needs to first century Christians, as well as issues that were happening within the church. So Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to this church that's in the city of Colossae, which is in Asia Minor, which we know as modern-day Turkey. Paul went to Asia Minor on his third missionary journey, and you can read all about that in the book of Acts. But it does not specifically speak about the Colossians. What had happened was, as Fresh Prince would say, what had happened was, when Paul went to Ephesus, he actually stayed in Ephesus for three full years, longer than anywhere else he traveled. He actually pastored there and stayed there for three full years. And during that time, two men from Colossae came over to Ephesus. Those two men were Epiphras and Philemon. Epiphras ended up starting the church at Colossae. 
And then Philemon started a church in his own home. What I got from this, before we even get started, is it is amazing to me the ripple effect that happens when we're obedient to where the Lord calls us and what the Lord calls us to share. Isn't it amazing that the Lord calls Paul to go to Ephesus? The Lord called these two men to go from Colossae over to Ephesus, and then the Lord called one of them to start the church, and later here we have the letter to the Colossians. You know, what's amazing to me is when I get to hear about something that has taken place that the Lord has done through this church. I get to hear that someone came to faith, someone got baptized. I get to hear that a life was changed. I get to hear it. But you know, most times, this side of heaven, we will not know how the Lord has used us. If you just do, and I know this is crazy, just do what God has called you to do and leave the results to him. And when we get to heaven, we are going to be mind-blown at all the things that God did just by our simple obedience. It is neat to see this side of heaven, but when we don't see it, by faith, trust God. Trust and obey, for it's the only way to be happy in Jesus. I think there's a song like that. (laughs) Anyway, if you got your sermon notes, they're in your bulletin. Roman number one, the city of Colossae. The city of Colossae. Again, the city sits near modern-day Hornoz, which is in Turkey, Asia Minor, near the city of Laodicea. From the Persian period to the Byzantine period, Colossae was a large, important city. During the Byzantine period, it was actually a metropolitan city and actually had one of the largest churches of the day right there in Colossae, the Church to St. Michael. During the third period B.C., Colossae was, again, one of the most important cities in the region, and they were known for the wool they made, and it has actually come to known as Colossian wool. But after the north-south road was moved to pass through Laodicea, the city began to dwindle. Back when we started the book of Ephesians, if you can remember all the way back there, when we started the book of Ephesians, we said the church at Ephesus was struggling for several reasons. And those same reasons that the church at Ephesus was struggling, the church at Colossae was struggling as well. They were only 100 miles away, so they had a lot of the same issues. Number one there in your notes. These believers at Colossae were struggling because they were subjected to a very materialistic culture. Again, Ephesus was a major port city, and Colossians was right there on the trade route. So the same problems Ephesus had is the same problem Colossae had. How about for us, church? Could we say this? The Church at Living Faith Fellowship struggles with materialism because of the materialistic world in which we live. Could we say that? Right? So, you know, we talk about, well, gee... Our car loan's about to come due, the end of it. Let's go out and get a new car and sign up for five more years of payments. Well, now it's seven years of payments, right? It used to be like 200 a month. Now it's like 1,000 a month for that pickup, you know, lifted, big rent, the whole, yeah. (laughs) Number two, the believers at Colossae were struggling because they were battling a pluralistic religious culture. And, And again... Ephesus, 100 miles away, had 50 separate 
deities and false gods, including the goddess Diana, the sex goddess Diana. And, and Colossae was so close, they had many different false religions as well. It made me think about the United States of America. When we first came over here from Europe, we did it because of religious freedom, right? I mean, we were subject to the Church of England and all these other things. And so when the settlers first came to America, it was for religious freedom. And that's a good thing. But what have we turned that into? Today, people worship everything and anything under the sun. I mean, we say we don't have any idols, but yet we have these things hanging in our living room. Then we hold on to this thing and give it all of our attention, right? So we have that. You see, here's the thing is the human heart was designed to worship the Lord. And if we don't worship the Lord God, we will worship somebody or something else. There's no two ways around it. We were built. We were made. We were constructed to worship something. When followers of Christ center their lives on Jesus, we begin to grow and mature and look more and more like Jesus every day. And the greatest desire of a sold-out believer is to please him. That, that should be our number one goal. The problem is Christians start confusing a Christ-centered life with a religious-centered life. And it's not the same. You hear some people who are in certain religions, sects, denominations, whatever, and you ask them, why do they practice that? Oh. I don't know why they practice that, because we've always done it that way, right? <laughs> right? Well, why, why do you do this and why that? And you bring up the Bible and you go, da, 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 da. I can't understand that thing. I just know how I was raised, so this is what I'm supposed to do. You see, every false religion, every false god starts on the premise that, yes, I want to worship, but I want to make God into something I want. You understand? I like Christianity. I do a lot. The only thing is, is I don't like that part of it. So we'll just change that part. You know, and you, you think about Jesus 2,000 years ago, right? Go and make disciples and make about 4,000 denominations while you're at it. I don't think he ever said that. I don't know. I'll have to study. I'll get back to you on that. But America, we live in a religious pluralistic society as well. So the problems that the people at Colossae had, we do as well. And then number three, this one doesn't fit at all. These believers at Colossae were struggling because they were living in a sexually charged society. Again, Colossae, like Ephesus, was surrounded with all these sexually immoral things, and they actually had shrine prostitutes in different temples, and you would go and worship the god of sex by being with one of these prostitutes. And you think, and I've mentioned this before, but you think about television, and you don't even have to be on cable, you could just be on one of the antenna TVs, right? And I mean, hamburgers and cars and cell phones, everything has to be sold with sex. Right. And why is that? Because the world and the enemy both know that we are visually stimulated. And so we watch that and we go, whoa, if I get that treadmill, whoo. 
Today, it's hard to stay pure in the sexually charged society in which we live. Number four, the believers at Colossae were struggling because they were living in an intellectually confused culture. Again, Ephesus was known as this higher education city, and Colossae was so close by that they had all these schools. But can I tell you, no amount of education and no amount of knowledge can give you a moral basis or change a human heart. It's impossible. For years, America has believed that if we just drill into our kids in public school good morals, that we'll have less crime in a good moral society. How's that worked so far? See, here's the thing. There's no instruction in righteousness taught at a public school, number one. And for another thing there in your notes, laws and moral teaching cannot change a heart. Only the Lord through his Holy Spirit, can change a human heart. You know, people have tried philosophy and religions for years and years and years to get correct behavior, and it just doesn't work. Some of the most rambunctious children I have ever met are PKs, pastors, kids. (laughs) But we live in a world where we think that philosophy and science has all the answers, right? And I mean, my, one of my sons is an engineer, and, and he was down for Christmas, and I was getting to speak with him, and we started talking about science, and I said, Rick, he's got a good name. <laughs> I, I, I said, you know, the thing about science is science should be able to be tested, right? You should be able to question science, because science is just somebody's idea. This is truth. Right. And, and so you should be able to question science. And if people say you're a bigot for questioning science. Houston, we have a problem. C.S. Lewis in that hideous strength tells of a day when science is going to take over society and man will try to be just like God. Tell me if you see that going on today. Cloning people. Uh, making up the creation account in a different way and all these things. And C.S. Lewis, way back in the day, spoke of this very thing. So the church at Colossae, they're struggling with all these things, the same things we struggle with today. So Roman numeral two, the writer and recipients of the letter, the writer and recipients of the letter. If your Bibles are open, Colossians chapter 1. Let's begin with verse 1. Colossians 1.1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who were in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, The book of Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul, but he had two purposes in mind. Two very definite purposes when he wrote this. One was to encourage these young Christians. They were young in the faith and he wanted to encourage them and teach them proper doctrine of just who the real Jesus Christ was. Not what they heard about Jesus or what others told them about Jesus. He wanted them to know who Jesus really was. And then number two, he wanted to protect them from false teachers that were going around with a different Jesus. 
These false teachers were very much like the false teachers of Peter's time. And, and so Colossians is no different than the people that Peter spoke to. I need to train them up. I need to show them that Gnosticism is not okay. And I need to show them also that the law can't save a soul. That were the two major, those were the two major problems in Colossae at the time, was Gnosticism and the Jewish law trying to mix with Christianity. There in your notes, but the main theme of this letter is the preeminence of Christ. And we're going to hear about that all through the letter. The preeminence of Christ. He is before all things. And by him, all things exist. And you're going to hear that over and over and over again. It's all about Jesus. Who's it about? It's all about Jesus. It's all about the preeminence of Christ. And that's what the whole intent of the letter is about. But notice Paul calls himself an apostle here. And we've learned this before. An apostle is a sent out one. In kind of a different way, you are apostles, but there are no apostles in the original sense today. So if you hear someone that calls himself the apostle George, Peter, whatever, no offense, but there are no apostles in the original sense. Why? Because there's two criteria to be an apostle. Number one, yes, you must be called out by God to be one. But the second criteria is you must have physically seen the risen Jesus Christ. So ask Apostle George Peter, have you seen, physically seen the risen Christ? So we meet the Apostle Paul. He was known as Saul in the book of Acts chapter 7. Maybe you remember the story. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was about to die for his faith. And Saul was standing by holding the clothes of the men who were going to kill him and giving consent to do it. Saul was a devoted rabbi, devoted to the Jewish faith. And I mean, he was going after Christians like a dog on a bone. He thought he was doing the work of God. But then the Lord reveals himself to Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And he drops him to his knees and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul looks up and says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus reveals himself right there, right then, and changes his name from Saul to Paul. Here's the key about that whole story. The apostle Paul knew about God, but he did not know God. And can I just tell you this morning, if you only know about God, but you don't know him personally, it's time to get to know my Jesus. Okay, because there's a huge difference between knowing about and knowing. But then Paul's response, and this is how you know it was a true conversion. And this is the response we have. Once he comes up off the ground, realizes whom he's speaking to, he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Got that? Lord, what do you want me to do? Not what does George want me to do or Frank wants me to do or my wife wants me to do. Lord, what do you want me to do? True conversion. And then notice it says, and Timothy, our brother. 
Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. He was a protege of Paul. There's two letters in the New Testament written from Paul to him. And he was also known as a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul started the church at Ephesus and then Timothy came in right behind him and pastored that church later. He had a Greek father. He had a Jewish mother and a believer for a grandmother as well. Second Timothy 1.5, Paul says, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I am persuaded that it's in you also. And so here we see that Timothy is there while Paul's penning this letter. But don't kid yourself. It was the Holy Spirit through Paul who wrote this letter. Timothy was simply a scribe. Timothy didn't like co-author the letter or something. And so who's it to? Great question. To the saints and faithful brethren. There in your notes. The dictionary says a saint is a person acknowledged as holy or virtuous and typically regarded as being in heaven after death. Listen to what Pope Francis says a saint is. This is pretty telling. Pope Francis said in order to be a saint, the person must show Christian virtues, at least in an ordinary extent, catch this, before or after offering their life. They must have a reputation for holiness, at least after death. So they became holy after death. That's cool. They must have performed a miracle. Britannica website said this, in Roman Catholicism and certain other Christian faith traditions, a saint is a holy person who is known for their sanctity and who is thought to be in heaven. In the 10th century, Pope John XV formalized a process to identify saints. Before that time, saints basically were established by public cult. But the Apostle Paul, 62 AD, is writing this letter to the Colossians. And notice what he says. You there in Colossae who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are saints. You're saints. There in your notes, biblically, every person who places their trust and hope in Jesus' free gift of salvation, provided by his death and resurrection, is a saint. I've probably said this 50 times in this church, but it never gets old. J. Vernon McGee, you're either a saint or you're an ain't. There it is. Brethren, you are either a saint or an ain't. And notice what he gives. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, boss, master, the one calling the shots. From God our Father and our boss. Our Papa and our boss. And here's the deal. You can never underline this. Write it down somewhere. Get a tattoo of it. You can never experience God's peace until you first experience God's grace. It's impossible 
The grace of God is needed to receive the peace of God. And grace, by the way, is unmerited favor, undeserved, can't buy it, can't trade for it, can't work for it. And once you receive grace, peace comes along with the package. All right, Roman numeral three, remarkable faith. Look at verse three with me. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. First thing, Paul says, I give thanks to God. Man, wouldn't it be sweet if you could call back every place that you ever lived and talk to whoever's in charge and you go, hey, what'd you think of that Rich O'Toole guy? I give thanks to God for him. What else would you want said? I give thanks to God. First Thessalonians 5.18, Paul said this, In everything, as long as it's things you like, give thanks. Oh, that isn't what that says at all. It says, in everything give thanks. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Notice it didn't say for me. He knows me better. That's heresy. In everything give thanks. Why? Because we know he's working it all out. If you trust him, you know he's got this. He said he's in charge. Trust him. So in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Why? Because right there in your notes, being thankful in life pulls me into God's will. Wow. And then notice what Paul says next. Praying always for you. Like most of the mighty men in Scripture, Paul was a man of prayer. One of my favorite stories about men of prayer is found in the book of James, and it's about Elijah. James 5.17. Listen to these words. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. How would you like to have been Elijah? Man, you, you're talking to the, the wicked king and queen and you say, hey, here's the sign. It's not going to rain for three and a half years. Watch this. And then three and a half years later, as the people were suffering, he goes, OK, repent and watch this. God, let it rain. Imagine that. And you go, but wait, Rich, Elijah was this great man. I'm not like Elijah. Oh, really? It's the last time you read First Kings. After this great triumph, he runs to a cave and he's hiding from Jezebel. And he's all depressed and everything else. Great man of God? Yeah, at times. At times when he was relying on the Lord. But at times he was flesh because he's a man with a nature just like yours. And he prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't. And he prayed again and it did. You see, here's the key. How many of us this morning, let me see your hands, want to be used by God this week? Let me see your hands. 
I know I do. Lord, yes, please. Okay, if you want to be used by God this week, be a person of prayer. Right? Because that's how your relationship with the Lord grows is through prayer. Be in his word, yes, but be in prayer. If your prayer life is weak and you wonder why your faith is weak, no mystery. Close relationships, one of the main avenues of a close relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave you a bat phone. You got the bat phone and you get to, Papa, let me tell you what's happening. And he goes, oh, okay. You know what's so neat, though? Paul never been to Colossae. He didn't even know most of these people. And yet he never stopped praying for them. Isn't that amazing? I mean, in my prayer life, and I shouldn't admit this to you because then you'll go and do something. But the number one person or people group that I pray for are people that I'm having an issue with. If I'm having an issue with somebody, I pray for them more than I pray for my wife or my kids or my grandkids or my church or anything. Number one, I pray for that person. Then, of course, it's my wife and my kids and my grandkids, my church, my country. But I never stopped praying. And Paul said, I don't even know these people, but I'm going to pray for them. You know, there are some people who say, what kind of ministry can I do? Look, I'm too old to work with them little bread snatchers. I am just too old for that. And by the way, I can't hold a tune in a bucket, so I can't be on worship team. I'm a little old. There's not much I can do. Well, can you pray? I won't mention her by name, but there's a 97-year-old lady that goes to our church and is currently sequestered, I guess is a nice way of putting it. This woman is a woman of prayer. And every time I talk to her, I know when she says, I've been praying for you, I know, oh, I know she's been praying for me. How do I know? Because the effects of it I feel every day. There in your notes, Paul was a man of prayer, so God used him mightily as he heard and obeyed the voice of God. Those with vibrant prayer lives are very thankful because they know that God is moving and hears their prayers. So why was Paul thankful for these Colossian Christians? Look again at verse 5. He gives the answer right there. Because of the hope which is laid up in, for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. These Christians had such a contagious faith that others around were just getting some of it and they were like, yes! Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and catches the evidence of things not seen. You go into court and they say, let me see your evidence. Well, you can't see it. That probably won't work out well for you in court. But with the Lord, that's what it is. That's the evidence. Faith is weighing the evidence of what God has said and then believing him and trusting him. You see... We can allow situations in our life to cripple us with fear. Or we can trust. Because faith is the evidence of things not seen. If you see it, why do you hope for it? You hope for things you don't see. And when we trust in our own understanding, it just shows how faithless we are. There in your notes, faith involves things not seen. So we know faith involves the future. 
as we trust the Lord for what will come to pass. And faith involves this confidence as we rely on him. And why did they have faith? Because of the hope that was laid up in heaven for them. There in your notes, the word hope means a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. Hope is very similar to the word faith. In the last couple of weeks, we've said these verses, and I, I was really fighting. Ah, we've heard that. We've heard that. I won't use it again, but too bad we're using it again. Just as we heard last week, Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Let me ask you something. Have you done lawless deeds? <laughs> did you need redeeming? Well, the good news is Jesus did it. He did it. So accept it, believe it, and let's go. You see, our hope is not only in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, just like I said last week. Our hope has a future. Jesus went to prepare a place for me. He went to prepare a place for you. Back when we studied the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 39, we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. What the writer was trying to say there was, we're not going to go back to old traditions. We're not going to go back to self-sufficiency to try to replace what Jesus Christ has done. And that tiny storm-tossed church with all their persecution, was facing a new persecution, and that was disbelief. And so the writer said, look, here's two admonitions for you. Number one, remember the past. Remember what Jesus Christ has already done and think on those things. And then respond to the future in confidence. Because if he could do it yesterday, he could do it today, and he will do it tomorrow. We need to remember how God has helped us so many times. I have said this a million times, but it's so important. Go get a journal. Get a prayer journal. And put all your cares and worries in that prayer journal. And then be sure, when God comes through for you, go back and put how he answered it. And in like seven, eight, nine years from now, when you're going through the same thing because we're slow to learn, Notice I said were. Go back and go, man, I faced a similar situation back there in 2010. And look how God showed up. And if God showed up in 2010, by golly, he's going to show up today. He's going to show up. So we need to remember his faithfulness. And then notice, faith and hope were heard by the Colossians. How? Through the gospel. The gospel. Gospel simply means good news. Right? So when someone's preaching something that doesn't sound like good news, it's probably not the gospel. There in your notes, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came from heaven to die on a cross, rise again, and is the only way for salvation for guilty sinners to stand redeemed before a holy God. All right, so let's get practical as we close this morning. Back to that to tell the truth, that game show, right? 
And I ask you to imagine for a minute the Lord Jesus Christ being on that game show. Contestant number one, are you the promised Messiah who was to come into the world? Are you the hope for all generations? Are you the promise maker? Are you the promise keeper? Are you the one, the only way to heaven? Or should we ask somebody else? And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But before Jesus made that statement, he made another promise that I want to tell you about. Before he went back to the Father, this is the promise he made. John 14, 1, he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go, listen, where are you going? I go to prepare a place for you. There in your notes. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And then check out good old Thomas. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, so how can we know the way? The song Waymaker was written by a Nigerian gospel singer, Sinach, It's been sung by a number of different people, but some of the lyrics say this, and I love this song. You are waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. You see, Jesus knew that his disciples were all bound up, worrying about where he was going, what he's going to do. And so verse 1 starts out, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be agitated. Knock it off. Calm down. Don't be distressed. And then he spends the next few verses telling us his plan. I go to prepare a place for you. This is where I'm going, that where I am you can come too. You see, there's a lot of room in heaven. You know, some of these people that say, well, heaven's just not big enough for all of us. Oh, yes, it is. By the way, I mean, think about the sense that makes, right? This is the God who created everything from a word from his mouth, and yet heaven's not big enough for you. Yes, it is. For the person who trusts the Lord Jesus Christ, he's made a spot for you. And our real home is heaven. This is not our home. And he says, I desire all to come. All to come. And I love, I love Thomas, right? Thomas asked this real serious question. And remember, this is the guy later when the disciples told Thomas that Jesus had risen from the dead. And he said, I'm not going to believe unless I put my finger in his nail-torn scars. Same guy. But Jesus' answer to Thomas here leaves little doubt on how to get to heaven. So either Jesus is a liar or there's only one way. Right? No one comes to the Father except through me. So either he's a liar or there's only one way. But then Thomas, he always gets a bad rap. No one ever cleans it up. Let's clean it up for Thomas. There in your notes. Later, when Thomas finally gets to see the risen Christ in John 20, he cries out, My Lord and my God, my boss. And the one I worship, my Lord and my God. 
So in Colossae, there's all this false teaching. And the Apostle Paul says, look, I want to encourage these relatively young Christians and tell them the truth about Jesus Christ. And I want to protect you from being seduced by these false teachers. And there's only one way to heaven. You can search and you can study and you can do all those things, but there's only one way, and His name is Jesus Christ. And if you trust Him, He said, I go to prepare a place for you. I've often thought about that. You know, we're told in Genesis that God created in six days, right? And why did He take six days and then like six seconds? I don't know. But he, he took six days and he created everything, right? Jesus has been gone just over 2,000 years. What do you think heaven looks like? Whoa. Whoa. Willy Wonka, you know, rivers of chocolate, corned beef. Man. My Jesus. He's way maker. Miracle worker. Promise keeper. Light in the darkness. My God. That is who you are. That is who you are. And, and just imagine this God of the universe, that he would look down on us who spat in his face, nailed him to an old rugged cross, and say, man, I love that guy. Man, I love that gal. Man, I love you. That ought to burn gray matter. But that's what he said. And he only knows how to tell the truth. So my God, my God, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you can be also. My only question this morning as we close is this. Have you accepted the way? I, I, I mean, because that's an eternal question. That's not like buyer's remorse, right? I mean, you buy a car and it's $700 a month and you get a little buyer's remorse the first time you get a ding in it, right? Been there. But if you die without Jesus, there's more than buyer's remorse. And he would beg not to, and I would beg you not to. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up, and there's going to be some elders in the back who'd love to pray for you. And if the people who are watching online, I, I've been told I need to say this, so the people who are watching online, if you need prayer, call the church office. We would love to pray with you as well. But this morning... I got told yesterday about a young man, and I won't mention the story or any names, try and keep it private, but this young man was lost, and he had really made a wreck of his life. And this young man just gave his life to Christ and got baptized. Oh, and I was Lord. like, you know what? The little bit of role that a member here in this church got to play in that, that little bit, man, I'm good for a while. But you know what would be really cool? If someone this morning came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and while the angels rejoice in heaven, we got to rejoice with them. Wouldn't that be Amen. cool? That's my prayer this morning, that if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus, man, we're, we're a bunch of misfits who deserve hell and got heaven because Jesus went to prepare a place and his blood covered all our sins. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you are blessed. If you'd like to find out more info about our church or any other resources like sermon notes or things like that, you can check out our website at livingfaithklamath.com. Make sure if you haven't already to subscribe or like us on whatever your favorite podcast app is. You'll find us at Living Faith Fellowship Klamath Falls. Again, be blessed. Be blessed.